A former Miami-Dade school board member is busted. African American baseball gets a rich new documentary, and Ecuador and Latin America face more awful gang violence. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll discuss more Miami corruption. Yesterday's arrest of former Miami-Dade School Board Vice Chair Luby Navarro for allegedly stealing tens of thousands of dollars from the school system. We'll also talk with the makers of Never Drop the Ball, WLRN-TV's new documentary about America's pioneering 20th century Negro baseball leagues. And we'll try to make sense of the new outburst of narco-cartel violence plaguing Ecuador and Latin America. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Well, we're going to start today with more Miami mess, but this time the corruption isn't about Miami city government. We're talking instead about yesterday's arrest of former Miami-Dade County school board member and vice chair Luby Navarro. She is charged with allegedly using her school system-issued credit cards, meaning school system money, to buy $100,000 worth of unauthorized and sometimes bizarre stuff for herself and her boyfriend. Navarro insists she's innocent. Navarro, you'll recall, had to resign from the Miami-Dade School Board a year ago because she's also a lobbyist for a Broward County hospital system. That job pays her about $200,000, which makes her alleged theft of money from public schools all the more remarkable. But this is Miami. Or what else explains all this? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio to tackle that question is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. Also joining us is Miami Herald reporter David Goodhue. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle's press conference yesterday announcing Navarro's arrest and, and some of the myriad illicit purchases Navarro allegedly made with those school board credit cards. It went for air travel. It went for hotels, meals, car rentals, and entertainment for herself, her friends, and, her fam and their family members. For example, she took her mother to the Dominican Republic, and she took her then-boyfriend to Las Vegas, and then she paid for her then-boyfriend's family to go to Disney World. But David, as you and your Herald colleague Chuck Rabin reported, the laundry list of stuff Navarro allegedly bought with the school system's money is more, shall we say, unusual than just trips to Disney World, right? I mean, fake pregnancy bellies from Amazon, GPS trackers to stalk your boyfriend? Oh, yeah, it got, it got bizarre. Yeah, the, uh, the fake pregnancy bellies, she was trying to convince her boyfriend that he was carrying her child. And so she would stop by his house and she, you know, got out of the car wearing the fake pregnancy belly. They even went into different um, months of pregnancy. She bought one for like two, two to four months and one for like four to six months. Uh, yeah, the, the she bought Apple Air Air tags to um, duct tape underneath her ex-boyfriend's car as it, she uses a tracking device. 
He yeah. found those actually because every time he was getting into his car, his iPhone started beeping, I guess, because the air tags and the interaction with, between the phone and the air tags. <laughs> well, I guess it's, it, it just proves to us you can get just about anything on Amazon, right? Um, uh, yeah. So uh, run us, David, through some of the purchases she's accused of making in 2022. I mean, Fernandez Rundle just went through some of the travel, but there are also just a lot of other things, you know, wine chillers for her boyfriend's business. And it goes on and on, right? Yeah, various coffee makers, very expensive refrigerators, high, defi high definition televisions, uh, a, a nice leather couch. Um, she went to Walmart like it seems sometimes like multiple times a day to buy make right. a lot of different purchases like like sometimes three to ten bottles of wine one time she bought uh which stuck out to us she bought um 56 individual mini lemon pies um you know multiple trips a day yeah and she's and she's caught on video at walmart too making making these purchases as well uh, as I mentioned, Navarro denies these charges. Her lawyer issued a statement yesterday insisting that Navarro has, quote, lived her life in service and is innocent of wrongdoing. But David, if these charges are true, what do prosecutors think could have compelled her to do something this brazen and, and frankly, this dumb? Even Fernandez Rundle said Navarro should have known better. What was she thinking? Well, she got she got away with it. She got away with it for, for a year before anyone noticed it. That's that's why she thought she'd get away with it, because she did get away with it. Yeah, she didn't. She, it didn't raise any flags until she resigned. And then um, the chief of staff that acts as a liaison between um, the school board and, yeah. and the, the administration uh, looked at her finances and saw it. I mean, her credit limit was six thousand. Every all their credit limits on those right. cards are six thousand yeah. dollars. And it, well, and December, December 2022, she spent 13000 on it. And, and he, he he looked at it in January. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and I want to I want to get to that. And but but I just want to ask you and you and Kate real quickly. These charges stem mainly from purchases made just in 2022, as you point out. Should we expect more purchases to be discovered, discovered from other years, Kate? I think so. Yes, because if you look at that, if you look at the arrest warrant, from yesterday that the state attorney's office put out. There was the uh, account, accounts payable department flagged a number of her purchases the previous year, including one in December, 2021 for about more than $500 to T-Mobile uh -huh. and utilities are, are forbidden purchase using those cards. And Kate, the school board is expecting to find a lot more of this as well. Yeah, so what we heard from uh, the investigators yesterday is, yeah, they focused on 2022, what they found they thought was damning enough to bring these cases, uh, these charges, but yeah, there there potentially could be a much longer backstory to, to these purchases, and if that is found to be the case, could be more charges potentially to come. And as you mentioned, David, it was the Miami-Dade School Board itself that detected what Navarro was allegedly buying with these school system credit cards. And essentially, they turned her in to investigators, including Miami-Dade Inspector General Felix Jimenez. How did all that play out? Again, it was that it was that December uh, credit card uh, statement from December 20, 2022. Right. When, and, and as Fernandez Rondo said, nothing could be reconciled was her her word from from this. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't. She didn't. Uh, she she looked like she she fudged uh, some of her records and she didn't turn in receipts at all. Well, that, well, the one that that caught the eye of the chief of staff of the school of the school district was 
that it was $13,000, but there were no receipts or, or no other kind of documentation with it. Right. Yeah. And then he started looking back at other months and was finding the same thing. Mm -hmm. But Kate, Navarro was a controversial figure well before she was arrested yesterday, right? T tell us about her checkered history on the Miami-Dade school board, everything from her objections to masks uh, to her really controversial religious stances in schools, et cetera. Sure. Uh, so as, as you say, back in August of, of 2021, during the brunt of the pandemic, uh, Navarro was the only Miami-Dade school board member to vote against a mask mandate. Uh, there was another member who wasn't uh, wasn't present, but Navarro was the only no vote. Um, and again, she's a lobbyist for uh, for a, a hospital system, so that was certainly in Broward, striking right. in mm -hmm. Broward. Yeah, um, and you know, this coming at a time when the district's public health advisors were really begging for more protections um, yeah. during surging cases um, of, of COVID. And then separately, another high profile incident. Uh, was during a debate on whether the district should recognize a national day of prayer in schools. And Navarro suggested from the dais that the Christian God is the only God. Yeah. Um, yeah, saying and that... Ended that up offending a lot of families sure. from Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, et cetera, sure. faiths. And yeah. people of, of no particular Exactly, and atheists beliefs. as well, right, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. So again, very controversial even before this. But let's, let's remind, listen, she was appointed in, in tw not elected, appointed in 2015 by Governor Rick Scott because mm -hmm. Carlos Curbelo had to step down because he had just been elected congressperson. So this goes back to 2015, as I said, but does Navarro also represent the new, more conservative leadership on not just the Miami-Dade school board, but many other Florida school boards where Governor Ron DeSantis has been able to install people to fight his, quote, anti-woke agenda in education, she seems to fit into that slot as well, no? I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, again, she did predate the administration of Governor Ron DeSantis on the board since 2015, and she was elected in 2016, again in 2020, um, but certainly, right. you know, was a, a reliably conservative member of the district and, and very open, you know, say about her faith. Right, and became vice chair yes. of, the, of, the, of the school board in what year? In 2022, 2022, okay. Mm -hmm. so, uh, before, so the same year. Before the crazy purchases Critical allegedly year. started being made. Yeah. Right. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about yesterday's arrest of former Miami-Dade school board vice chair Luby Navarro on corruption charges. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, David, Navarro is being held at the Turner Guilford Knight Correction Center here in Miami on what seems like a, a fairly high $2 million bond. And if she's mm -hmm. convicted on the two counts of fraud and two counts of grand theft, she's possibly facing more than 50 years in prison, if I'm correct. Does it feel like prosecutors are out to make a real example of, of this case? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, South Florida's uh, no stranger to uh, public corruption like this. This reminds me a lot of the a case that um, we covered in the Keys in 2009 with the um, then superintendent, his wife, who was the head of uh, adult education for Monroe County School District. And they were pretty much doing the same thing. They were... Uh, they they thought that in the end they prosecutors say they use their school district uh, issue credit cards for up to a half a million dollars wow. in purchase. Mm -hmm. Thanks for reminding us of that. Yeah, how how did that all play out in the end? 
In the end, um, the, the superintendent, Randy Acevedo, he got um, three years probation because he kind of cooperated. But his wife, who was uh, Monique Acevedo, has since passed. Uh, she did eight years in state prison. Wow. Now, Kate, should we expect any sort of school board reforms to come out of this, especially with regard to these so-called P cards and travel cards that she was using that board members are regularly issued? How exactly do those work? And what perhaps makes them so ripe for abuse, especially in cases like this? Yeah, so again, board members get these district-issued credit cards to cover district-related travel expenses and also what's supposed to be small-dollar purchases for supplies for their district offices and for school supplies mm -hmm. for the district's schools and, and students. There are limits on these cards. There's the $6,000 a month credit limit, uh, which Navarro was able to successfully run up yeah. uh, and get increases on. But uh, even under that limit, you're mm -hmm. not supposed to spend that $6,000 on wine chillers. Correct. Yeah. There's, <laughs> you know, a not exhaustive, but there's, you know, a, a decent, decently detailed list. It's supposed list to have of, some semblance of yes. appearance of, of school board relevance, right? Absolutely. Okay. And one of the things she did was bought a ton of gift cards and use those right. for, for other purposes. Like and that alone, 78 of them, no? Yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. that alone, uh, you know, investigators say is generally not allowable and would require extensive documentation to justify, which she did not do. Right. And Kate, we, you know, as we pointed out, it was the Miami-Dade School Board itself that discovered Navarro's alleged theft and reported it to investigators. So th that should help allay concerns of those who might fear Miami-Dade schools have a, you know, endemic corruption problem. Still, I mean, we're talking about stealing $100,000 from schools and kids. Those aren't the greatest optics for the system, right? Especially given some of its past controversies in recent years. Sure. And I think it's important to again say that school district administrators dis discovered this after she resigned. Yeah. So before she was handling the reconciliation, the monthly balancing of the books herself, and investigators, along with her assistant, uh, and investigators say, you know, she's whiting out her name, she's doctoring the receipts, and for a year, she she continued to do that and was able to run up these bills for mm -hmm. over a hundred thousand okay, dollars. Yeah. So what if what if she hadn't had to resign? You know why a, a year in um, was this able to continue? Where mm -hmm. are the checks and balances? Right. Should 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 expense reports be um, uh, reviewed more regularly than that? Then perhaps yeah. Or with more extensive oversight, you know, beyond yeah. uh, the the school board member and and their assistants and. The accounts payable department of the district, which, you know, apparently was was not sufficiently flagging this stuff. Yeah. OK. Now, good, good points all. David, what does it look like Navarro's defense will be now as you know, her lawyers are her lawyers claiming, for example, that she always meant to maybe reimburse these unauthorized purchases or what possible excuse or mitigating circumstances, if any, is she expected to claim? I mean, right right now, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the defense is going to be, other than they're just saying she was innocent. They blasted the uh, state attorney's office for uh, arresting her at her home and ensuring that she was going to have to at least spend one one night in jail. So I don't know. You know, they're just saying she's innocent right now. That's all. Yeah. What, what was that? The, the complaint about not. I mean, some com complaint about not giving her advance warning that she was going to be arrested. I mean, is that something yeah. prosecutors are obligated to do? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, not to my knowledge, yeah. but, uh, 
Yeah, it's it seemed like, you know, the 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 statement was pretty much seemed one of, you know, you didn't extend me privilege of a public official and treat us treated me like a common um you know defendant. Yeah. So okay. Finally, Kate, in the in the larger picture, do you think Navarro's case, as well as the case of other disgraced education conservatives like Moms for Liberty founder Bridget Ziegler that you and I discussed a, a couple weeks ago on this show, might that have an effect on the recent push we've seen in Florida to make school boards more right wing? Could this have any sort of you know, effect on making people pause at that trend? I mean, I, I think it remains to be seen, but if in both of these cases, it's it's almost cliche as far as it's it's such a familiar story of elected officials, mm -hmm. you know, do what I say, but not what I do. Um, and, yeah. you know, whether it's running up the credit cards, as we as we've seen other, you know, and God, and God knows liberal, and, liberal, uh, you know, school board members and politicians mm -hmm. are just as guilty of this kind of lapse of ethics. Yeah, sure, sure. But I think, you know, it, it certainly underscores the need for uh a close eye on on our government officials, you know, and, and really reviewing their operations and, and really checking on them when they say they're, you know, carrying out the work of, of the people and acting on behalf of children. Mm -hmm. And David, just one last question. Uh, her bond hearing was supposed to be today. Do you see the possibility of her getting this, this you know, intense $2 million uh, uh, bond lowered in her case? Um, not, I don't see anything right now. I mean, whether that happened today and I don't know about it, I mean, there's certainly a possibility, but I mean, no, I, I, I haven't heard that. Okay. Well, this is going to be a fascinating trial if it comes to that, uh, to say the least. David Goodhue is a reporter for the Miami Herald. Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter. Many thanks to both of you. Thank thanks you. So Have a great much. weekend. You too. Thanks. Still to come, WLRN's TV's rich new documentary looking back at the Negro Baseball Leagues. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. When we talk about African-Americans and baseball, we usually start with Jackie Robinson and the integration of Major League Baseball in 1947. But we should start a century earlier with Moses Fleetwood Walker, who's credited with being the first black man to play for a Major League team in 1884. Not long after, of course, Major League teams decided to keep their teams all white. And what emerged in the meantime is one of America's most fascinating and pioneering sports phenomena, the Negro Leagues. Those barnstorming teams of the early and mid-20th century, which featured legends like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, didn't just showcase black baseball. They helped create the more vibrant American baseball we know today. And Miami played a big role. That historical lesson is beautifully conveyed by a WLRN-TV documentary titled Never Drop the Ball, which will debut next Thursday at Miami's historic Lyric Theater in Overtown. Here's a sampling from the trailer. Two, four, six, eight. We don't want to integrate. If you wanted to play ball and you were a black man in America, this was your option. Just had a passion to win, had the will and the skill, the grit and spit, the fire and desire, and a refuse to lose attitude. What's not to love about the story of the Negro League? It's just the fact that people didn't know the story. 
of the Negro Leagues. Do you remember or know someone who remembers Negro League teams like the Miami Giants playing at Dorsey Park in Overtown? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio here are the persons who produced and directed Never Drop the Ball, WLRN's Director of TV Production, Michael Anderson, and WLRN's Television Production Coordinator, Fabian Cardenas. Gentlemen, welcome and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Michael, why this particular moment to make a film about the famous Negro baseball leagues? What did you and Fabian feel hadn't been said or put out there yet about this key part of American sports and social history that needed to be presented still? Yes, I feel uh, it was really important uh, to get the film out uh, both culturally, uh, but also these untold stories because there's different areas of our community um, be it Overtown and Dorsey Park mm-hmm. and the history of the Miami Giants, but also Henry Flagler and the history of baseball uh, in Palm Beach and with the hotels and the rail- right. railways. Uh, and then f- baseball was all up and down uh, Florida, all up and down the coast. Mm-hmm. So really telling these stories of these small teams, these barnstorming teams, uh, even the the Seagulls, uh, yeah. the yeah. Sarasota Seagulls, yeah. Seagulls uh, mm-hmm. different teams in Tampa. Over in Tampa, it was a lot of, uh, let's say, Negro baseball. Yeah, you're right. That that Miami and Florida component of the Negro League's history often is not brought up. And, and, and I really do feel you guys did a fantastic job of making that component you know, more prominent uh, in, in the history. Yeah. And it's because Florida become a place for them to thrive, right? Yeah. Here is mm-hmm. the winter leagues. Uh, here's where we have a nice weather and they can come and play mm-hmm. and uh, and keep practicing the game that they love. So that I think for me, that is was the aspect more beyond baseball mm-hmm. is the human aspect of these athletes. Now, I, I think anyone who watches this documentary will learn a lot that they didn't know. I know I did. And and one of the really important points it drives home is one that I think a lot of people overlook. Because when we talk about the Negro Leagues, we tend to talk about them in the context of racial segregation. And the point I'm making uh, that I'm talking about, really, is that for all of its injustice, racial segregation actually ended up making America's pastime a better game, a more engaging sport, right, Michael? Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. I think um, the Negro Leagues was a great uh, sport. It was a great game. Uh, It brought, and it it was very inclusive as well. So uh, Mm -hmm. it brought uh, women into baseball. It it included other nationalities into baseball. Uh, There were... Uh, black and white owners in the Negro Leagues. Right. So, you know, during this this time, you know, and back to the Miami Giants. So the Miami Giants weren't officially uh, a part of the Negro Leagues, but they were a barnstorming team, you know, based here uh, in Miami. At, and, and we should explain yes. to be a barnstorming, yes. meaning, you know, teams just going all over the country. You That's know, right. And, and That's just right. barnstorming this town and that town to bring to bring the game to everybody. Yeah. That's right. Bringing the game to people that have mm-hmm. never even seen um, yeah. professional baseball in that way. Yeah. yeah. And Fabian, as someone who fell in love with Venezuelan baseball when I lived there many years ago, one of the other things I really learned a lot more about in this documentary uh, was how black ball players not only barnstormed America, but Latin America and made the game there better, too, right? Of course. I think uh, these players went to Latin America because they couldn't have the, the major, play, major league players, right? Mm-hmm. So th- these leagues, they were trying to, you know, grow 
So they say, okay, let's go and bring these players, these fantastic players that I'm seeing there, but because they're segregated, nobody's paying attention to them, so let's bring it to us. Mm -hmm. And this player went to Latin America, and they create a brand of baseball. Yeah. Fast, sexy, beautiful. It is, I mean, if I have to fall in love with baseball, yeah. it had been that kind of baseball. Yeah, and Mike, let's, let's go back to that point, because what I, what I was pointing out earlier was that, you know, the, the Negro Leagues really made the American game, the American pastime, more vibrant. I mean, you know, things like just, you know, simple things like stealing bases more, just, you know, ta taking the game into a more sort of aggressive gear um, is... is do people really realize that that was the you know the the role not just you know from in, in a racial standpoint but a sports standpoint yeah and, and also just bringing in, in innovations you, you know yeah. like mm -hmm. our, you mentioned um stealing bases but also the hit and run yeah uh, the button and run uh and mm -hmm. and these innovations of making uh baseball faster uh more yeah. energetic uh with that not just the standard um base to base or trying to hit everything out of the park as a home run, right. they brought a lot of entertainment to the sport with speed and quickness. Yeah. Uh, and I think now in baseball today, exactly. those those rules have been changed. <laughs> a to, century later, we finally figured out, we gotta, right. we gotta make the pitcher and the batter go faster. Correct, go faster. Yeah. correct, which was <laughs> happening in Negro League baseball. A century ago, yes. right. But despite all that, Michael, the major leagues at the turn of the 20th century made what the documentary ironically calls a, quote, gentleman's agreement to keep black players off their rosters. Why does the film conclude that they made that racist decision? Uh, to keep, well, I, I feel basically it was all about the dollar, yeah. all about money. And, and because of that, those decisions were uh, made to keep out but uh, but also during the time of Jim Crow era and, and the racist segregation, mm -hmm. uh, things that were happening, a lot of hatred uh, in this country, you know. And so that definitely caused a lot of divide uh, when it came to that. But always it was all about money and making money. And, you know, we talk also about some of these uh, baseball fields, mm -hmm. uh, Yankee Stadium. You know, these were fields that were being rented out to Negro League baseball teams. And they were still renting these teams, I mean, these fields to make money uh, at the yeah. time. So the game was still moving yeah, forward. And I, I, yeah, I want to get to that. <laughs> but was there also the feeling that players like Moses Fleetwood Walker were just too good and they didn't, and, didn't want their white players showing up? Yeah, I, I don't I, I, I say I wouldn't say they were too good. I think it was so many players that were left behind just because of racist attitudes right. and thoughts. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about like too good or too bad or being shown up. It was just, uh, we won our game and you could have your game. Like it's separate, right. you know? And it was a lot of things in this country that was happening. Separate like, but equal. That's quote, correct. Quote unquote. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, yes. exactly. This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm Tim Padgett. I'm talking with the makers of WLRN-TV's new documentary on the Negro Baseball League's Never Drop the Ball. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Let's pivot a bit to the important role Miami played in the development of the Negro Leagues, and that focuses on Dorsey Park in Overtown. How did that come about? Yeah, uh, well, Fabian, I mean, I mean uh, Dorsey Park it becomes essential to to the Miami Giants, especially. But before Dorsey Park, also the the, hot, the hotel industry is the one that support these entertainment. 
So they sell the entertainment for tourists, right? The hotels are the coming. The hotels, uh, not just in Miami, but up That's and down right. the, 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 the coast. The breakers, right. the, yeah. you know, the Palm Real Beach. Ponciana, right. all of those. And they're they're recruiting good black players by hiring them as employees mm-hmm. exactly. of, of these exactly. hotels. So right. they yeah. work it out, the, the, you know, trying to avoid these, these segregated laws and all of that. Mm-hmm. So they try to really integrate them, right? Say, come entertain. We'll say that you are a waiter, but really you are hired to come and play right. because you are so good. Yeah, you know exactly. Yep. But but even earlier than that, speaking about uh, Dorsey Park and and D. A. Dorsey selling uh, that land to the city uh, to create a park uh, for the baseball team to play. Matter of fact, the uh, Miami Giants helped clear the land uh, of Dorsey Park to turn it into a park to play baseball. But the man Dorsey himself. Is, is very important here. Absolutely, the first, absolutely. The often fir- talked about as the first black millionaire in the That's United right. States, right? And, well, I don't know about in the United States, but definitely in it, Miami. In Miami, sorry. Yes, yeah, right, okay. definitely. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, using that to have uh, land, and now that land itself uh, was used to help uh, expand this game, and now it still is there today. So anyone can go to that park and play on that same diamond right. that's there. You know, I mean, it's actually almost walking distance from uh, the studio here today. But now, as a kid who grew up in Indianapolis, this documentary finally answered a question for me that I've had in my head for, you know, 50 years. The first baseball, one of the first baseball cards I ever had as a kid growing up in Indianapolis was a player who played for the Indianapolis Clowns. And I couldn't understand how the team got that name. This documentary answered that question finally for me. Tell me about how the name of the clowns actually started here in Miami. Well, the Miami Giants become the Ethiopian clowns. The Ethiopian clowns, and, yeah, and, yeah. And there's a story there, right? The yeah. Giants was used because the Giants were in the newspapers. So if your team was called Giant, you know, a Michael's team was called Giant, when the Giants were coming. Yeah. I don't know what Giants, but they were coming. Right. So <laughs> the clowns was because, you know, they needed to have an attraction. They needed to have... Um, something. So when they did the Ethiopian clowns, the the war in Italy was happening with uh, Ethiopia. So that's how they create right. that team. Mm-hmm. And that team kept the clowns because of the side show that they used to do right. and called Indianapolis Clowns and become finally part of the league. Right. And But there was also something a little um, controversial Absolutely. about that, obviously. The, the, the clowns wasn't just a name, it was also became sort of a brand in, 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 the, in the showboating and the entertaining that the players were known for. And there were some black ball players who really didn't take very kindly to that. They thought it was not great for African-Americans image, but yet at the same time, it gave, it gave the sport a new energy. Can you kind of describe that, that, that tension there, Michael? Yeah, I think it was, it was a tension. It was a big tension there between different uh, leagues uh, I'm, I'm sorry, different teams uh, within the league uh, that didn't really uh, shine favor on that style of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously it brought uh, entertainment to the field. And that also brought people uh, paying at the box office, in mm-hmm. a sense, to to be there. But ultimately, a lot of players uh, were not happy with that style of play. So one of the individuals that's in the film uh, Buck O'Neill, right. Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill, you know, recounts his time uh, with the clowns and was not really in favor of that style of game. And it was very degrading mm-hmm. to some. Uh, and these were very proud black men that that uh, 
wanted to play this game and be very respected in this game and not to come off as clowning. Right. But despite those antics, those antics actually helped uh, uh, promote or produce a lot of that energy, that new energy for baseball that we talked about before, the, and, and, and those innovations. Um, let's talk about uh, the Negro Leagues establishing, you know, after they were established in 1920, and they bring a lot of innovations to the game that actually draw larger crowds than the Major League Baseball uh, does for the most part, right? Like, uh, not just, you know, uh, the, 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 the sort of a lot more base stealing, etc., but the batting helmet, mm-hmm. simple things like that. The first night game. That's right. <laughs> tell, That's us, right. tell us about that. And also even speaking about shin guards. Yeah, you know, exactly. A lot of yeah. times that was brought mm-hmm. and created for protection to yeah. uh, stop people from uh, hitting your shins, running, right. uh, sliding into base. Into second uh, base. That's, yeah. that's correct. Mm-hmm. But uh, night baseball, you know, the, the biggest of them all, you know. Yeah, whenever you have a, a need, becomes an innovation. Mm-hmm. So it was a need for all of these, and I think night baseball was a need. So yeah. um, this, this league needed to survive. So they rent from the major leagues, right, the stadiums mm-hmm. and all of these things. So they were given the worst times to play. I said, go ahead and play on Sunday. Go ahead and play. In, well, you can create night. Go ahead and play at night. So these necessities of bringing, you know, serve their audiences was, um, you know, created by the Monarchs, who was the first team that they did this. Right. And, you know, create a whole system very, you know, cre- cre- creatively. Mm-hmm. Then they took it everywhere. So in 1930, they played the first nine game right. in 1935, like it's in the history books. I'd like if you could both of us, uh, both of you, just tell us um, about the pleasures and the challenges of making this documentary. What 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 also struck me about it was that there's a wealth of historical resources out there about the Negro Leagues, like the museum in Kansas City that played a big part in this film. What were, as I said, the pleasures and challenges of of making this documentary in the minute we have left here? Yeah, I, I think the pleasures for me. Uh, was really digging deep into this history uh, and really connecting with the experts uh, that that are around in this documentary, Bob yeah. Kendrick, uh, Larry Lester, you know, and the different uh, spokespeople we have. So mm-hmm. that was the pleasures of it. And Fabian? For me, it was just to bring these universal themes of courage and uh, inspirational story and see the human aspect without color, without anything. It's just to see the human aspect of a story like this was wonderful. Well, thanks. Michael Anderson is WLRN's director of TV production. He and WLRN television production coordinator Fabian Cardenas produced and directed WLRN's new documentary Never Drop the Ball, a history of the Negro Baseball Leagues. The film will be screened next Thursday at 7 p.m. at Miami's Historic Lyric Theater in Overtown. It will debut on WLRN TV on Friday, February 2nd at 9 p.m. You can find more information at WLRN rent.org. Gentlemen, thanks very much and congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Still to come, what to do about the gang violence that rules today in Ecuador and Latin America. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Just when we think the gang violence in Latin America and the Caribbean can't possibly shock us anymore, it shocks us again. This week, we saw a new burst of narco-cartel violence in Ecuador. And on Tuesday, 13 masked and heavily armed gunmen stormed a TV station in the coastal city of Guayaquil, 
during a live broadcast. They brandished explosives and pushed their gun barrels into the necks of horrified hostages. They shot a cameraman in the leg, fortunately not fatally, before police finally arrested them. It was just the latest reminder that gang crime has morphed into gang rule in much of Latin America, from Haiti to Honduras, from Mexico to Ecuador. It's a product of two key things. First, the region's lack of democratic institutions like justice systems. And second, the insatiable demand in the U.S. and Europe for cocaine. It's a key reason a record number of migrants are fleeing to the U.S. and our southern border. The question is, how does the hemisphere get rid of this plague? Or can we get rid of it? Here in South Florida, you probably know someone affected by the gang violence in Latin America and the Caribbean. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is Christian Ceballos. He was born in Guayaquil, the site of that terrifying TV station takeover in Ecuador this week. Today he lives in Kendall, where he's a councilman on the Miami-Dade County District 11 board. Christian, thanks for coming in to talk with us about this. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me here. Actually, I was born in Quito, but I grew oh, up I'm in Guayaquil. I'm sorry. <laughs> you grew up in Guayaquil. I'm yes. sorry. Thanks for correcting me on that. So as I mentioned, you grew up in Guayaquil. Yes. And as an Ecuadorian, how much of a gut punch was it to see those live images of armed narco gangsters storming a TV station in your hometown? I mean, it's been horrible. Um, I grew up in Guayaquil. I was born in Quito, and uh, Ecuador used to be a very peaceful country, as I was saying the other day. Um, when I was growing up, there was a lot of uh, migrants from Colombia getting into Ecuador because Ecuador was very peaceful. We used to this have a lot of... This was in the 80s and 90s, In the 80s right? and yeah. 90s, yeah. and uh, we didn't have any of the problems that our neighboring uh, countries used to have because Peru used to have a lot of problems, too. Which right, with the shining path. Exactly. Yeah, exactly uh, yeah. So it was it was terrible. And uh, in the last uh, 10, 12 years, things have changed uh, worse in the last three or four years. So seeing what was happening at this TV channel, uh, you know, two or three days ago, it was horrible. It was something that um, to me, it's, uh, you know, it, it surprises me a lot. But at the end, what I can say is that, uh, you know, this is something that was coming and has been growing little right. by little in the last few years. Yeah. And um, people think that this is something that suddenly uh, yeah. got into Ecuador. But no, it's I been wanna, growing up for uh, the last 10 yeah, years. And I want to I want to get to that. But first, I just wanted to ask you, what are friends and relatives telling you there about the situation on the ground? What are they conveying to you? Well, what they're telling me, I precisely have a brother in Guayaquil, and one of the, you know, there was a, a killing in a, in a gym, you know, a couple of blocks away from my brother's house, uh, um, you know, the day that these uh, vandals and, and criminals were on the streets. So they're telling me that, you know, they're very afraid of going, you know, on the, uh, out to the streets. I was in Ecuador, you know, just a month ago, a month and a half ago, and it's not the same as, you know, when I used to go two, three, four, five, ten years ago. Now you need to walk carefully and uh, you need to uh, watch your back and see where you go because you know there's a lot of criminals so people are scared my, my relatives my friends they're really scared so let's let's go back and talk as you were starting to mention about what's changed uh in ecuador in this century and as you mentioned a lot of people wrongly think that the gang violence plague just hit ecuador overnight in no. the past few years but it's something that had really been building for several years and it starts in large part with the breakdown of democratic institutions like the justice system under a very authoritarian ruler 
former President Rafael Correa know about a decade ago. Exactly, because you know what? All the ingredients have been in Ecuador to become like this, even a little bit before Correa, because this is what happened. You know, Ecuador adopted the dollar in 2000. So all the countries, the neighboring countries that were trying to uh, lend their money, now they had Ecuador because they have the dollar. You uh, know? So, so having a dollarized economy helps facilitate money laundering. Totally. Yeah. So a lot of Mexican cartels started to kind of want to get into the country, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the early 2000s. Then Correa gets in power in 2007, and uh, he starts facilitating stuff, you know, for these criminals. Actually, when the, one of the FARC, uh, FARC's computers was uh, seized, mm -hmm. they found that they were having communications with Correa and supporting his campaign. So that was in 2007. By 2009 or 10, Correa even made uh, supposedly peace agreements with some gang members mm -hmm. even there's a there's a famous uh, you know gang uh, that is uh, the Latin Kings they used to operate in New York and there was a lot of Ecuadorians there too mm -hmm. he brought them to Ecuador he made them uh, kind of uh, respected citizens and then there was uh, some other gang members from the 80s that uh, President Leon Febres Cordero he was able to to tackle that uh, that uh, gang they were Alfaro Vive he made agreements with them they right. he even named them secretaries of different uh, departments so and he has a nickname uh, which but, but with Los Choneros Los right? Choneros that, and then right. and then the, now we have the Choneros Los Lobos the Wolves and many other uh, members about four or five that are really powerful but these were actually created and supported not only by Rafael Correa when they captured Chapo Guzman he even said in Chapo one of Guzman being the famous Mexican the drug Mexican lord. Uh, uh, drug lord yeah. and he even said in one of the declarations that Rafael Correa helped to build one of the the, the fields in order to land uh, his little airplanes and stuff right. like that and so, at the same time Correa was weakening the justice system and he was sort of taking over the justice system and, and when you don't have an independent judiciary in a country that that really compromises its ability to confront organized crime totally because he yeah. changed the constitution and you know what let's remember something we uh, the united states used to have a base in in ecuador in manta they uh, used to have yes. a base for many years right and that base was used to control the narco the narcos you know around the area right when that base went off that, correa that, went after that Co base, correa right? went yeah. after them and they mm -hmm. said you know what uh, go away, and he changed the constitution so a United States base has, uh, you know, can never go back to Ecuador unless you change the constitution. Right. So things started to change. Uh, we have Raul from Pembroke Pines. Uh, he feels that a lack of jobs has led uh, to this this plague. Raul, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. What what uh, what's your point here? Well, yes, there is. Uh, I agree completely with my. Compatriot, I mean, he... Okay, so you're Ecuadorian as well, Raul? I am, yes, by birth, but I have lived most of my life, 40 years in, in South Florida. Mm -hmm. And But regarding this, you know, we, we have had this problem for many years, and the problem is the lack of judicial backup for investment. Who wants to put money in a place that you may lose your money because of whatever lack of judicial help and backup. Besides that, justice is not working right. in Ecuador. We see that justice can be... Right, can so be what you're make, the, point, your point you're making, and I would agree, is that if you, if you don't have functioning institutions, that's going to make investors, foreign investors especially, balk at bringing money into your country. Um, that, that, that Thanks for your point, Raul. I appreciate that. Um, but Christian... 
this also has to do with the insatiable demand, as I've mentioned before, for cocaine in the U.S. and especially Europe. We're hearing from the EU that most of the coke that now comes through the ports there originates from the ports in Ecuador. Yes, 80%. Does that surprise you? Yes, exactly. You know what? Uh, the amount was the one that was uh, you know, a surprise for me. I was reading an article that 80% of the coke that Colombia produces goes out through Ecuador. Through Ecuador, yeah. So yeah. right mm-hmm. now, if you go to the, um, to the coast where Esmeraldas is, Esmeraldas is really dangerous. You know, the, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was uh, just listening to, uh, to an interview of the Esmeraldas mayor. He's saying, well, you know what? What you just saw in Guayaquil and Quito is what we live every day. Right. So don't get too scared because that's what we live every day. So this is something that, you know what, uh, at this point, uh, you know, my suggestion is that President Novoa, he needs to uh, request the help of the United States because, you know what, right now, the United right. States, of course, combats, the, the, you know, the narcos, but 80% of the cocaine that Colombia produces goes out through Ecuador. Right. And I want to get to that. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the gang violence crisis in Ecuador and across Latin America and the Caribbean. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Christian, let's just briefly remind our listeners what sparked this new outburst of cartel violence in Ecuador this week. It was just a reminder of how powerful these gangs really still are there, like Los Choneros, as we mm-hmm. mentioned, who last year assassinated a presidential candidate mm-hmm. who was running on an anti-corruption platform, Fernando Villavicencio. What sparked things this week? Actually, what happened is that President Novoa started to announce that he was going to implement a change, and some of these uh, leaders, they were going to be transferred to a maximum security um, jail that is even better than the ones that uh, or, or, or less bad than the ones ones that they're, uh, they're in right now. So once he said that Fito, one of the leaders, the powerful right. leader, right. and some others, they were going to be transferred. And, you know, he said it as a joke a couple of weeks ago, we have a plan, but don't tell Fito. Apparently, Fito already knew about the already plan. Already knew, <laughs> right, right. And um, you know, because, you know, there's people that are uh, telling him, you know, what's what's coming. So he said, before I get transferred, you know what, I'm going to get out of jail. Now they're saying that he didn't even go out of jail three or four days ago, that he already escaped on December 25th. So that's 20 days ago. So um, that's what actually sparked all these uh, violence and these gang members being worried that they're going to be transferred or affected because they're living right now with a lot of power, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, they're comfortable. So that's what I think is sparked. They're lashing out Mm -hmm. in in many ways. I want to go back then to uh, something that you started to mention uh, earlier in our discussion. What do you think the U.S. should be doing more of to help countries in this hemisphere like Ecuador beat back this organized crime plague? I mean, besides making people stop snorting cocaine, what can the U.S. really do when it comes to helping these countries build those institutions like police and justice systems that are so necessary in We're this fight. Precisely, I was reading uh, from uh, you know some articles from the Department of State that they are actually sending uh, people to Ecuador in order to advise, in order to help, uh, not only investigate, you know, what's going on, but also to. Um, train, um, you know, the the law enforcement in Ecuador, because that's basically what it is. You know what? They need a lot more training, and the U.S. could could be a great partner in order to train, to advise, to help in the investigations, the FBI and many other agencies, for sure. Because, uh, you know, they've been concentrating in Colombia for many years, and, and, and even Peru and even Bolivia. 
But right now, if Ecuador is being the port, you know, that uh, that right. serves, you know, all mm -hmm. these uh, narcos and, and, and drug lords in order to take their drugs out, well, Ecuador, they need to, uh, you know, put a lot more concentration in Ecuador. Now, you say you, you spoke with President Noboa uh, a couple months ago before he took office. And yes. again, we should remind people he just took office. He's only 36 years old. This is a heck of a challenge for him. Uh, what did you and he talk about in terms of how he plans to confront uh, this organized crime crisis in Ecuador? Well, actually, you know what? Um, he didn't mention any plans, but something that I said to him and I also said to the previous president, Lasso, when he came to the United States a couple of years ago, I told him, you know what? The first thing that you need to do is protect the identity of everyone that is involved in in, in law and controlling and, and, and executing law. Because you know what? I got friends over there that they're uh, state prosecutors and all that. They're very afraid because uh, their uh, information is really public, you know, anything, addresses, names, or the relatives. So he needs to hide information, give them more, more protection. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, the state attorney, which recently came out with a plan, with, with a, uh, an investigation that is called metastasis, where mm -hmm. everything, you know, came to the light. She needs a lot more protection because soon we can uh, be having law enforcement and everyone around that is scared to talk or to do anything. Christian Ceballos is a native of Ecuador and a councilman on the Miami-Dade County District 11 board. Christian, many thanks. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. And suerte. Gracias. Finally on the Roundup, a reminder that on Monday we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Here in South Florida, a highlight will be Miami's 47th annual MLK Day Parade in Liberty City. It will start at 11 a.m. and cover eight miles along Northwest 54th Street from 10th to 32nd Avenues. That route, by the way, traces the steps Dr. King traveled during his frequent visits to Miami during the Civil Rights Movement. Miami's MLK Day Parade is one of the country's oldest and largest, drawing more than half a million people in years past. This year, it will also include a Caribbean twist with carnival dancers. It'll finish up near Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Park, where a family festival will take place to promote Miami's vibrant African and Caribbean heritages. Those are among the many heritages that make America great, which was, of course, Dr. King's most important message. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.